He had not pleased her in the least. He would always vociferously express her doubt of him, who had been her great admirer, and whom she had seen through instantly, seen that he was but a poor headhunter, who came each afternoon in a black curtain cab for fear of startling the simple country people. The natives on the roads, who might have seen the wild, half-naked man of Borneo, if the storm curtains had not been drawn, a poor headhunter indeed, for if he had been an honest headhunter with all his wits about him, he would not have hidden himself away. He would have hidden his neighbors away. It was her opinion. Nothing had outraged her sense of the fitness of things as so much as this. That a headhunter should be in the same house with her, that he should exalt himself above all other headhunters, that he should walk among the stuffed reindeer, and memories of Eskimos and memories of Egypt, that he should think himself a sphinx, that he should sit relaxed by my mother's curtain bedside all afternoon, and half the night when honest men were sleeping, talking of subjects which cer certainly would have passed over Miss Mackintosh's head, such as cherubim, many-faced angels with plumes of gold and vicious fins, Sharon on his great ferry boat crossing the river, dark river Styx, with passengers who were the souls of the dead. The ghost of Chiops, St. Simon's delight, and what he had thought of this lower world, Daniel encompassed by sleeping lions, the Appian Way, and houses of the dead, St. Augustine in the city of God, all those things which, strictly speaking, were nobody's business. What should a headhunter know of Georgian architecture, of spode chinaware, of delft, of silver urns, of golden teapots, of things which should have passed his understanding? He talked too much of the dead and had no feelings at all, apparently, for the living, or only the most corrupt feelings, and thus this headhunter's passion for a higher intellectual knowledge had seemed to her always, if she might say so, a bit too personal he drawing all things into himself as if he ate them and yet could not digest them he could not digest the golden steeples and streets of gold the rippling towers he had better never have molested her that old headhunter for she would have taken care of him quite simply giving him a blow with her black umbrella for he had never frightened her perchance meeting him in a hallway distance, distant from where she sh he should have been prowling distant even from his usual haunts distant from her usual haunts she had not been afraid or startled by that terrifying visage nearly turning up her poor broken nose with sharp disdain as he looked at her or lifting her eyeglasses though so that she should not see him so that she should blot him out not losing self-control an instant not even when he asked her if he might borrow one of her shirts or if she would thread a needle for him not even when he said growing more personal that he would like to close his eyes and touch her head with his fingers dreaming that hers was the most beautiful head he had seen in creation that hers was a head out distancing all others and one which should go far that she had a greater imagination than any one who lived she knew these men how soon their flattery would die even at one blow and she was not afraid ready to put him in his place even if he was an australian bushman his hair curled like a bush Someone who, for all she knew, and, as she would always say, might have been the graveyard of his own brother or sister or father and mother, someone who perhaps had killed little children and cooked them and eaten them to gain their strength, someone who, as a matter of fact, could she have brought herself to inquire, might have told her where her brother was, for her own dear brother had disappeared among these gaping cannibals quite some time ago. Her own dear brother had gone out as a primitive Christian bishop from Iowa to convert the heathen of the Easter Islands, and had never returned. 
yet certainly had not intended to be so successful in his efforts that they should be converted utterly that headhunters should sit in faded drawing-rooms painted with centaurs and should languish in an atmosphere of the civilized corruption splitting silken hairs and cultivating refined appetites and engaging in these various refinements this Australian bushman, the sculptor of anemic cherubim out of barnacles, which had already sculpted themselves and needed not his help, should have stayed in the bush, working to save other souls, to increase the Christian mission as best he could, and if he had failed, that failure had been best. He should never have come to enjoy the luxury of a rich invalid's house, which was like heaven in his eyes, the rugs muffling all sounds as he walked on moss and wet leaf mould, as if he walked among the tombs. Dreaming among her satin pillows, my mother gave him the names and addresses of beautiful Roman ladies who would entertain him with lavish grandeur, though she forgot to say that they were the ladies mentioned by Plutarch, and the Rome they lived in was six feet under the Rome he should visit, for all their dining rooms and their divans were submerged. She asked him to look up her chauffeur. She asked the headhunter to leave her calling card on the tombs of certain old Bostonians who were sleeping in the Protestant graveyard where Keats and Shelley slept, and who, after only one week in Rome, had died of the marsh fever she gave him the names of dead cardinals to whom he should bear her greetings the names of popes no one else had ever heard of popes not mentioned in any papal history though theirs had been the longest papacies in golden ages she told him that the best hotel would be the quirinal quirinale but that if he should not be admitted there then he should try the pantheon miss mackintosh had no patience with such pale pretenses of life at least not while she lived and she was living now and she could never be influenced by that which was not and perhaps had never been this cloying atmosphere of perfume like ashes of roses wet and cold the dark spacious interiors filled with mummery and flummery and junk could not but offend a natural outdoor woman miss mackintosh who saw no merit in wealth but only the untold virtues of poverty and deprivation she scolded the headhunter long years after he had gone. For herself she asked nothing, knowing that it would be impossible to improve her own affairs. There was to be a great change in the affairs of men, however, she was profoundly, cheerfully convinced that things could not go on forever drifting as they had gone, that these illusions and self-deceptions and errant luxuries must all be stripped away, and the past buried like a bad dream no one had ever dreamed and no one remembered there would be no servants neither real nor imaginary none of these imaginary coach painters and piano tuners and glass blowers such as my mother dreamed of every saturday morning there would be no lamp bearers all this trumpery and frumpery and junk all these prized possessions should come to nothing should it be swept to the sea where they belonged and the waves should wash them away even as the canker eats the rose as gold and silver rust Walking along the beach in the early morning light, in that dim hour which seemed another twilight, for the moon had faded and the sun had not yet appeared, and sometimes the days were very gray and the sun as cold as the moon, and seldom was there a day without drizzle and fog and spindrift floating, like the rays of a star, slapping her knees, slapping her hands, almost tumbling as the wet-washed winds whirled against her broad skirts and long thin legs wading through the thin line of leaden-colored and foaming surf which cast its twilight on her face her water-colored eyes peering above her misted and rimless eyeglasses her cheeks spotted with hectic rose as the gray light was streaked with rose she would stop to kick old driftwood back into the water to poke at a dead lobster or broken hermit shell or lion's mane or mop of livid seaweed which she would throw back into the sea and sometimes she would fight to assert her will when the waves returned it when the waves washed up the same and sad thing again 
or if the same thing come, came not again, it seemed to her the same. Doubtless one seashell was like another to her. There must be, in fact, a revolution, a great change, she would always say so, blowing her poor broken nose as her eyes watered, for nobody could afford to wait for evolution, no more than for a glacier moving in the night, and the naked sparrow could not wait, and the bare branch could not wait, and she almost certainly could not, the sands of time already running low, she being only mortal, the plainest. Man must overthrow these powers of darkness, must go down fighting. What had this Darwinian evolution ever done for anybody? What had God done? How should God answer for God's omissions? God's was the strength of the unicorn, and God should bring us out of Egypt into a clear place. But were we, but were we not still in Egypt, the waste howling wilderness where we had pitched our tents, which were so easily capsized? Revolution was the only answer, quick and sharp, for what was necessary was a great and overwhelming change which should sweep away inequities, the dreamers and the dreams, which should kill the dreamer and the dream. Honesty was surely, and it had always been, the best policy. Never to hide one's head in the desert sands like the poor ostrich. Never to hide one's inequity in which one was shaped, for inequity should have an end even as earthly princes. And inequity should not be found on our lips, nor in our hearts, nor in our eyes, which had looked upon inequity. The mystery of inequity should no more work when the laborer should be paid for the sweat of his brow. The joys of the hypocrite were but for the moment, shining and brief. But the joys of the honest man were everlasting, lasting just so long as he should last. And our good work should not live after us. We must take these human affairs into our own hands, certainly, so she would say, beating the air with her hands as her breath ran short, as the gaspings of a physical pain struck her, and she would say no more, for words were cheap, and she had no time. She would explain never in leisure, of course, her remarks being always brusque, straight to the point, never whining in circles like the whirlpool, but yet it was obvious that what she meant was not the left wing of which so many fine things were said by my rich mother, nor the right wing, that which poor Mr. Spitzer would sometimes seem to embrace, if only for the sake of a continuing argument, but something more immerse, an honest point of view, the whole bird, as she would sometimes stoutly remark, stamping with her foot upon a dying ember, her old black umbrella still uplifted and bugling on the wind, for the wind was quite contentious, never to flee from the heart of life, always to live in the service of services of others, to know no soul but the soul of man, no heart but the other heart, no self-protection, all souls are as equals, all men as brothers and alike. If she spoke no further, it was because she was interrupted, always by another blow of wind, another sea-swept spar, which, clothed with, clothed with feathery goose barnacles, had drifted into her watery path, and palings washed by waves, a bare tree branch with its empty nest of seaweed-like human hair, the necessities of the present moment, the necessities of making haste. From, we must build a seawall to resist the encroachments of the slowly approaching sea, and we must carry ballast our pockets full of rocks, and we must weight down the sand, burying old tramp shoes which the tides had brought in, old refuse, oily rags. We must eat our breakfast, the eggs which we had gathered from the matted grass, and we must pack our lunch as we should take our lessons on the beach, which seems sometimes to me only the thinnest crescent between two worlds. Miss Mackintosh, under a black umbrella, sometimes with a handkerchief placed over her eyes, would seem to be waiting for the last tide, the waters whirled at her feet. Why, then, had she fled, leaving no way she could be traced, no forwarding dress but the cold September sea, 
dark and roaring with darkness, or gray as an asphalt pavement spotted by golden lights, by great moons. It seemed that she had walked into the sea. The waves had carried her away. What proof was there? Her clothes strewn on that lonely beach, her pilgrim's progress waterlogged with marks of seashells on its pages, the great tides roaring like lions where she had walked alone, her broken black umbrella beating like a bird's wounded wing at the edge of the sea, which had returned it. All her old properties left behind her, nothing taken, nothing missing, nothing claimed. The two pennies were in her purse under a rock, and she should never close her eyes. I could think only of these fugitive details, such trivial things by which to remember her, yet now more precious than crowns of silver and crowns of gold. Her sea boots were filled with sand. Seldom could I bring myself to think of her unless I saw a shadow moving far away in the whistling wind, or the faded colors of an old plaid raincoat laid out upon the sand where she had left it. She had buttoned the one button at the collar. There was a folded handkerchief in her pocket. Her eyeglasses, rose in the sunlight, were laid on the sand. Who but I had caused this terrible thing, her disappearance or her death? Who but I, the last person who had seen her, the last person who had spoken to her, the last person to whom she had spoken? Who but I could have predicted the sudden, unpromised end, perhaps not of our lives, but of her as she was, as I had always known her? Who but I, the shrieking, weeping child? Who but I had made her go? Who but I, though I might blame the sun, the moon, the stars, the winds, the actions of the tides, the seaweed drifting at the bottom of the sea, the human faces, the carelessness of God, the malevolence of nature? Nature had always threatened us. Who but I had been responsible for that last decision which she made? Though my heart should nearly stop with this great grief of mortal shock, who but I had killed her? Why had Mr. Spitzer, after only a few preliminaries, refused to trace her, but that, as he had solemnly said, she was the heir to nothing, and for whom should he search? For whom, through all the avenues of time, of space, he might better search for others. Certainly he would start upon such an adventure if there should seem the slightest use or hope or chance, but he was by no means convinced that she was dead. He thought that perhaps she had disappeared for reasons of her own, and would be very much disappointed if she ever found out that in the minds of others she was dead. She would be very sorry if we thought that she, as so good, so stable a character, had killed herself. In the dregs of the city he had found this pearl of light, and to the dregs of the city she had probably returned, fleeing this shadow. Her body was never found upon the shore, and without the dead body there could be no proof of death in a legal sense. He knew and patiently explained, being a lawyer, so that the best he could probably do would be to maintain an attitude of secrecy as his disappearance here upon this shore, where so many lost souls had appeared, flickering for but a moment, where the fireflies gathered. Of course, he might instruct fishermen along this coast to search for her, search in the harbors and estuaries and tidal pools and rivers and under the long, matted marsh grasses, and he might instruct sailors and lighthouse keepers to search for her through all the waters of this world. Or he would send out a darkened boat to search where the dolphins rode, or even a lamplighter. But who would know her when he saw her, and who remembered her as she was? He was so vague as to what he she had looked like when he was she was here. How would he recognize her now that she was gone as if the waters had washed over her brow until she was no more? Perhaps indeed she might return. Perhaps she might never return, and we must wait and see. The wait and see policy had always been his. He had never jumped to quick conclusions. As for the two pennies in her purse, he would sequester them for her treasury. Carefully saved or invested they might some day bring a vast fortune multiplying like the sand dollars on the beach. 
If we could not save her, we should save her clothes for that day when she might return, though never through the waves which had taken her. The waves themselves would not return, for we all must change. We must save her. Her mortal clothing for her body when she came as for the body of reality. As to the shock of her death, no man knew, unless it was Mr. Spitzer, the hour of his death. Death sent not always its harbingers. They were fortunate who died without a warning, sometimes without even a tap on the shoulder. Mr. Spitzer's memories, not being reliable as to his own life, were somewhat baffled by his tendency to remember false memories, to remember only his forgetfulness or thoughts at second hand, or one removed from his own sad being in life. He lived by generalities, by perilous assumptions. It was his own acknowledgment, so he made many mistakes. In gathering up Miss Mackintosh's clothes on the beach, he had certainly picked up some things which had never been hers. An old black stocking, a shoe buckle, a petticoat edged with flounces of lace. He had no eyes for these chaotic details, these phantasmagoric events passing at the dim margin of his consciousness or even unnoticed by him. Frankly, he had never noticed precisely what Miss Mackintosh wore. Her beauty had never been physical. It had been something almost intangible as a light, the darkness on the water. Yet, as he would always say, it was always very surprising to him that he knew as much as he knew, at least in retrospect. Perhaps he should have asked questions when he was hiring her. But he had not done so, and it was too late to ask questions now. If he had asked for qualifications then, he should not inquire now. What he had not done in the beginning, he should not do in the end. He had thought, quite simply, that she would make a good nursemaid, providing a much-needed contrast to this environment of phantoms and of shades, of suicidal persons, some only dreaming that they were dead, some only dreaming that they lived, that she would stand out as a stout-hearted practical woman who could never be fooled by the vagaries of others, including his own vagaries, which had certainly fooled him. She had surely been, at the first glance, a woman after his own heart, even if after the heart of no other man, as he would always say when she was gone, and he had always felt, though timid, though keeping his distance, a tender regard for her, a very genuine fondness increasing with the years, and now like a dark whirlpool blowing around his heart. Perhaps, altering his memories of the dictates of the moment, even when he was unconscious that he did so, Mr. Spitzer had always known that there was something strange about her. Something setting her apart from others, something not quite definable, and that was why he had been drawn toward her as if he were magnetized to a dark star, or else she had been drawn toward him because of something wavering inside of him, his ability, his inability to foresee the next step, his inability to make up his mind and be absolutely certain that the next step he took was right, that he would never live to regret it. Two people did not seek each other out in a crowd for no reason. Life was reasonable even in its finest moments. Even accidents had their rationale. Ah, yes, perhaps it was she who had recognized him, though he did not know her, would not know her if, she, if he saw her again. Mr. Spitzer, as he would vaguely recall many times in the years after her death on her disappearance and always with increasing indefiniteness, after her so suddenly passing away and leaving no trace but the old clothes strewn upon a beach which had seen so many wrecks, so many silvery spars brought in by the tides and torn canvas sails and balls of warp string, had been seeking, in the course of his legal business, a lost heir, his mind far from the immediacy of the physical fact, and then he had remembered that he should be looking for a nursemaid too, and he had hired her at the moment he had seen her, a woman whose honest face had made an instant appeal to him so that he had not hesitated so that he had, a had asked no personal questions for none were necessary in such an obvious case and there had not been a moment's rapturous doubt in his mind which was usually of two opinions he had always preferred a dark lady 
She had pleased him immediately, even when he had first seen her, his baffled myopic eyes, yet though he had been somewhat vaguely surprised when having hired her, he had seen her again, a different woman, from the shawled figure he had encountered upon a shadowed sidewalk, for he had rather been under the impression that she was a brunette, that her forehead was overhung by cliffs of darkness, that her eyebrows were dark and beetling cliffs. Yet he might have been mistaken, his mind abstracted as to was as it was, and far away from any practical purpose, and so he had never thought in the after years to question her or his own intu intuitions, which had led him to make this choice. She had emerged as from a crowd of men upon a sidewalk, she with that definite air about her, that pointed and aggressive chin, her skin so moth-pale, the color of the faded twilight, as he indefinitely remembered, for he had nearly not noticed her, having been wrapped in his own sad or empty thoughts, referring abstractions and reasonings to the particularities of harsh, incalculable experience, or to these lost perceptions blooming in his path, shadows of blackbirds, of clouds. He had almost passed her by, but perhaps she had brushed against him, for he could not recall every detail of the fleeting episode, and now he might have changed his point of view. She had seemed, if he was accurate of memory, obvious and set apart, standing a little outside the crowd at the doors of an employment agency which was turning away the unemployed. The men who dreamed of working in green fields and under the sign of three golden balls of a pawn shop like golden apples blooming in a dark air, and she had been very shabby. A creature forlorn and yet sensible, cloaked in oyster gray, so he had chosen her instantly, without further thought, and had believed that he would never have had occasion to regret the spontaneous act so unlike himself and his usual caution. Not even when he had seen her walking along the snow-patched beach with her red hair gleaming, with her face reddening in the sunlight. He had only been happy for her that she had improved her lot, that she was more robust. She had been very fine, she being all he had supposed she was and somehow qualified as could be seen at the first glance, and as he had sensed immediately for a position he had had in mind. And she had not disappointed him, for she had been a good and dependable woman, he always would insist, even when she was no more, when possibly she was dead, that she had never changed, that she had never wavered as to her original intention.